This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. With me this morning, please, to Exodus chapter 20. You've just seen an Exodus there in the Sunday school. Exodus chapter 20. Now today we're coming to what I would say is the pivotal part of the whole book of Exodus. Remember I said uh, last week that Exodus can be divided into two, to two parts. First 18 chapters, 1 through 18, simply referred to that as the Exodus because that was the, the main thrust of those chapters. Chapters 19 to 40, right to the end, is the giving of the law. And the giving of the law can be divided into three distinct areas. Chapters 19 and 20, the moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Chapter 21 to 24 is the civil law. Chapter 25 to 40 is the ceremonial law. All of that together is called the law. Uh, The moral law and the civil law in the Bible sometimes called the the book of the covenant. But it's all to do with the law. Before we actually look at the Ten Commandments, we face the problem that the early church faced when dealing with the law versus grace. Now that was a hot potato topic in the first century and it's a hot potato topic in the 21st century. And Paul had to deal with it at length in his writings. In fact, the book of Galatians was written specifically to deal with that very subject. Judaizers, that is to say, those who believed that to be a Christian, that you had to obey the law of Moses. For example, you had to be circumcised. uh, You had to uh, hold to the feasts. You had to do the Sabbath laws. And all of those things which is under the law of Moses. So the Judaizers then said, well, if you're going to be a real Christian, you still got to do all the law of Moses. And uh, much confusion then began to come into the ranks of the church at Galatia. And Paul took them to task. And that's why he wrote the book of Galatians. And in fact, in that, uh, he confronted Peter. Uh, because what had happened was that Peter, who was the apostle of the Gentiles, Paul was by and large the apostle of the Jews, but Peter, who had been reaching out to the Gentiles and winning them to Christ, had been eating with them, had enjoyed their fellowship and their hospitality, but then when certain circumcised men from headquarters that James sent from Jerusalem to go there, uh, Peter then felt a bit intimidated by these circumcised certain men uh, from the headquarters. So he withdrew himself uh, from his Gentile friends and stopped eating with them. And Paul was livid at that. He felt he was betraying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Bible says he was stood unto his face. And Barnabas, he said, was even getting carried away with it too. And in fact, he called Peter a hypocrite. Can you imagine that? So Paul called them out on that very subject. So it was a big issue right from the very beginning in the early church, particularly whenever the gospel started to go into the Gentile world and the Gentiles come into the church. 
because by and large to then it was a Jewish church. Now it's a Gentile church and there's more Gentiles than Jews being saved. So you can see there's a clash here of, of cultures and what they felt was scriptural admonitions and they really had to deal with this. And at one point in Acts chapter 15, they held what's called the Jerusalem Council, where all the, the, the big apostles and, the, and the, the leading elders, where they all met together to discuss this very subject because it had risen to such a pitch that it was danger it was going to split churches. And so if you read Acts 15, you'll see that they, they concluded in the end that the Gentiles would not have to obey these laws other than refrain from things that were strangled and, and things with blood and all the rest of it, uh, stuff that perhaps they would have been involved in in their pagan lifestyle before. As long as they keep away from that and, and no immorality, then you're good to go. You can forget about the, the Sabbath laws and all the other things. And so... We need to ask then some legitimate questions like, what is the law? What does the law do? What does the law not do? To whom was the law given? Does any of it, does all of it, or none of it apply to New Testament believers today? Uh, some of these questions are very easy to answer, others less so. And so obviously, if a special council meeting of the elders and the, and the apostles was held at Jerusalem to discuss this, you can see that it wasn't a small issue. It was a big, big issue then, and it's still a big issue today. Now, here's an easy bit to grasp. All the ceremonial law with all of its animal sacrifices, with all of its special feast day, with the priesthood, the Levitical offerings, the tabernacle, the temple, all of these were types and shadows of Christ who was to come, who came and fulfilled all of those to the letter. So that no longer applies to any one of us today. And so that's been fully fulfilled. So it's not a requirement for us at all today. Now, the reason why we read it simply is because when you read it and understand that it was types and shadows of Christ, then you can see Christ in it in a brand new light. And it's, a, it's wonderful to read. It's, I love it uh, because it reveals Christ to us perhaps in ways we never thought about before. The civil law was given specifically to Israel to regulate their lives as they now began to live in community one with another, particularly when they would get to their promised land and there would be a nation there and they have to live together. So all these civil laws were given by God through Moses to regulate their lives. And it, it covered everything, the things relating to slaves, which we don't deal with today. Uh, things relating to property and trespasses, things relating to uh, animals, uh, because it was going to be an agricultural nation. Uh, for instance, if your bull went out and gorged some of your neighbors, say, how do you deal with that? Who gets compensation? How does that work out? So all the, even all these little nitty-gritty details were included in all of these things. Or uh, how to treat strangers and foreigners that comes into the land, remembering, tells them to remember that you were once a stranger and a foreigner in Egypt. And so they had to, there were specific laws for all of these things. And, and even, uh, even a simple thing like, <clears throat> like every seventh year, God says, let the land lie fallow. Don't, don't plow, don't reap and sow. Let the land lie, just let the land rest. Let the land have a Sabbath rest. Now that's good for the land. Now of course, 
Israel was the only nation on earth that was actually given that law. The only nation on earth that was ever given a Sabbath law at all because up to then, I mean, it was seven days a week, and particularly if you're a slave, it was seven days a week, 365 days a year, maybe all day and sometimes all night. So there was no rest. So God says, no, you need rest, and your body needs rest. You can, you can live longer without food than you can without sleep. And so there's a reason for rest. And, and we'll come to the Sabbath thing uh, later as we go through these uh, issues. And so even though these specific laws were given to Israel, uh, and they don't apply to us today, but all nations and all communities have to have laws. If they didn't have laws, it would be chaos and anarchy. So there has to be all kinds of laws to govern any nation or any community. And so it comes down to the thorny issue, inevitably, down to the moral law, the Ten Commandments. A prominent megachurch pastor in America has recently preached a message that has stirred up a whole hornet's nest that advocates using his words on hitching the Old Testament, that we're to unhitch the Old Testament and we're not to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, regarding not obeying the Ten Commandments, to be fair to him, uh, he did say on the basis that Jesus rolled the ten into two, loving God and loving your neighbor, which he did. And in fact, we can read that in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22... In verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, who was an expert in Jewish law, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus, in a sense, truncated the ten into two. And probably on the basis that the first four are uh, Godward and the last six of the ten are manward. One's, one set is vertical, one set, set's horizontal. So you can see why Jesus did that. And, uh, and so this megachurch pastor was right in that sense. Uh, but the reality is that the Ten Commandments are infused in the New Testament. They're coded there and infused in it. And we'll come to that a bit later too. Uh, and so this business of unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament, even that quotation that Jesus used, those two statements he used, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, both of those are in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So Jesus certainly did not unhitch the Old Testament. Sure he didn't. He's quoting from it. In fact, in the temptations in the wilderness, he quotes three times from the Old Testament. It is written, it is written, it is written. So no question of Jesus unhitching the Old Testament. Paul didn't unhitch it either. He quoted from it several times. Even Jesus on the cross, when we did that series about what Jesus spoke from the cross, we saw it again and again. Jesus spoke from the Old 
Testament. Stephen, in his defense uh, in the book of Acts, in his defense against the Pharisees and so forth, who put them in trial, he quoted extensively long passages from the Old Testament. So this business on hitching the Old Testament is just a nonsense. It's completely and utterly wrong. And in fact, I quoted a, a, a section last week when we talked about delegation and Moses delegating uh, from Acts chapter 6. And you remember how that in Acts 6, the church had exploded. There was 3,000 saved in one day and then 5,000. And so the whole city was filled with, with, with you know, the word of God and the gospel. And, and so Christians then uh, began then just voluntarily even selling their land and all of their land and parts of their land and their goods and, and laying it down at the apostles' feet so there could be distribution among the poor Christians because lots of these Christians would be slaves. So they make sure that everybody had all things common. It was a wonderful thing. And, but then there arose a dispute because the, the Hellenist Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, felt they were unfairly treated. And so they went to the apostles. This is not right. We're not getting our fair share. And the apostles basically said, look, you know, we have enough to do. You look out seven men who are honest and just and filled with the Holy Ghost and let them take care of the business side of that. But we must give ourselves continually to prayer and to what? To the word of God. What word is that? New Testament hasn't been written. To the Old Testament. To the Torah. To the Psalms to the prophets, to the writings. That's all they had. And so they didn't unhitch it. That's what they preached from. That was their Bible. Now, there's a real danger, of course, whenever we begin to enter into this law versus great argument. There's a danger that, that we come down in, in, uh, to two extremes. That we come down either on the side of legalism or antimonianism. Antimonianism uh, nomos means law. Remember I told you that Deuteronomy is Deuteros nomos, second law. So nomos means law, and antinomianism means anti-law. And so our license, we could put an order and say license, just do whatever you like. We're no longer on the law, so you can live whatever we like, do whatever you like. And so there's a danger then that we can fall under one or those sides. Like Judaizers and the Pharisees were legalists. And they thought that by their fastidiousness of keeping the law, that that would save them and that that would sanctify them. Actually, it could do neither. But they thought that. And so they were very meticulous in, in keeping the law because they thought well if we keep the law that, that saves us that sets us apart that sanctifies us but it didn't do either they didn't understand really why the law was giving because Paul says by the works of the law Galatians 2.16 by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified and in 1 Corinthians 6 and 11 he wrote we are sanctified not by the law by the way but by the spirit of God so there's a danger that even us, if we're not careful, that we could become legalistic uh, in a way that God never intended us ever to be. And that people who become very legalistic becomes very judgmental because they're judging everybody on the basis of what they think is the law and being legalistic to the law. 
And so we need to be careful of that. On the other hand, there's those who hate the law. Antinomianism. They hate the law. They don't want any rules of any kind. They just say, well, love is enough. Just live your life loving everybody. Do not correct. Do not judge any behavior of any believer. Just love them and God will deal with them. Well, I don't think Paul got the memo. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a... I can put this delicately. There was a, a man who had an incestuous relationship that was so bad that Paul said it would even embarrass the unbelievers. It's really bad. And he says, you know what, Corinthians, he says, you're puffed up about it. You haven't dealt with it. You're allowing this to go on. In fact, you're nearly proud of it. He says, this is really, really bad. He says, you really got to deal with this. In fact, he says, I can't be there at the moment, but I'm telling you, I'll be there with you in spirit. You know, the Lord will be there. I'll be with you in spirit. Deal with this man. In fact, he said, because the man was unrepentant, in fact, he says, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he may be saved in the end. Huh. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll find that at some point he did truly, truly repent. And Paul says, bring him back into fellowship again. Lest Satan now get an advantage that he'd be so crushed and so broken if he's rejected him now. He's already rejected him. He's already repented. So bring him back again. And so this business of, well, we, we can't judge any behavior of any believer. Well, we're not really to judge the outside. They're already condemned and that's their lifestyle and wrong as it is, but we don't judge them and that. But we can. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. But we can judge aberrant behavior of believers particularly in the church because Paul says do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump in other words if you let this go on the others will say well if he can do it I can do it if she can do it I can do it and where does it stop where does it end and so that was habitual unrepentant sin Paul says deal with it so this is why some in the church are very liberal in their thinking that they accept all kinds of, of aberrant behavior without question or without correction. Just embrace everything they say. Love covers all they say. Love wins in the end, they say. But surely love chastens. You chasten your children because you love them. Not because you hate them, but because you love them. And you want them to go in the right direction. So you chasten your kids. And God's no different. He doesn't want us to go off in the wrong direction. So he will chasten us if we don't catch ourselves on and deal with ourselves. Then somebody else is going to have to deal with it. And God's going to have to deal with it because he doesn't want you to go off in that direction. Did Christ hate the law? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do you think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets? I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Wow. So Christ didn't hate the law because it's God's law. It's God's law. But Christ came to fulfill every jot and tittle of God's law, which he thankfully did. So, did Paul hate the law? Absolutely not. Because he understood what the law was about. In Romans 3.20 he writes, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's what the law cannot do for us. Then he writes, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law can do for us and does do for us. It reveals sin. doesn't save us. doesn't forgive us our sins, but it reveals our sins. It shows us that we need a saviour. In Galatians 3, 24 and 25, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, faith in Christ that is, I'm saying, we are no longer under a tutor. So here's a, an illustration. Uh, in those days, because remember that in the Roman Empire there was at least 15 million slaves. Slavery was just the norm. And so it would be the slave who would take the child of the master to school. It would be the slave who would take the child to the place of learning, to the one who would teach them. And so Paul uses this analogy and he gives it a little bit of twist and he says, now it's the law who takes us to Christ who is our teacher who shows us the right way, who shows us the way of righteousness and the way of life. It's the law who points us to Christ, who takes us to the school of Christ, could you say? It's the law that does that. Thank God for the law that showed us our sins, but the law points us to Christ. The law will always point you to Christ. Can't save you. In fact, you stand condemned before a holy law because you can't keep it. It's not meant to save you. It's meant to point you to Christ, who can save you and who will save you. Amen. I remember that Paul was dealing with both Jews and Gentiles who had become Christian. And many of the Jews were still struggling with regards to the law and its requirements. And of course they had the Judaizers and they had the Pharisees trying to get them to come back under that old law and the requirements. And then you had the Gentiles who were by and large led to Christ through Jews who had a Jewish Bible. So they had come into this wonderful freedom in Christ from that pagan world they'd been living in. So were they going to have to give up that liberty and now go under the bondage of the law? And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul says, no. The law and the prophets have done their job. And so you're free from all the requirements of the law, all those ceremonial laws, all those civil laws you're not required to keep. But what about 
the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are we free from those two? You see, this is where antinomianism comes in. This is where the, the license comes in. Well, if, if we're free from the law, and you know, technically, uh, technically, because it's part of the law, technically, we're free from that. But, but, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that those ten were subsumed into the New Testament. And you'll find them actually in the New Testament. And, and we'll, we'll come more to that whenever we deal with the actual Ten Commandments, which won't be this morning, by the way. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Otherwise, your dinner's going to be burnt. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll do that tonight, but we're setting the... We're setting a, the scene for it, really. And so, one thing for sure is we're not free to break them. We're not free to go out and commit adultery. We're not free to covet. We're not free to steal or to lie. We're not free to defraud or... We're not free to do any of that. So that licensed business, it, that doesn't wash. Uh, that's a trick of the enemy to try to take us down a wrong path. The only way that we're going to keep the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because within ourselves, we, we just can't do it. It, it. The standard's too high. It's too great. So in order for us to do it, it's only going to be by the Holy Spirit. It's going to have to be by power that's greater than we have in our, in our human flesh. It's only Christ's blood that can save us it's only the shed blood at Calvary that can save us. The law doesn't save us. Keeping the law doesn't keep us saved. Did you hear me? Only the blood of Christ saves us, and only the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us can keep us. But if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we keep these moral laws, then without question our lives will be a better testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the epitome of all those of us who kept all, every one of them perfectly <clears throat> now what about Jesus simplifying the ten into two well we'll come to that whenever we look at the ten more closely now sometimes I think that whenever we enter into this debate about law versus grace that we, if you're on the road any length of time and you know a little bit about the Bible, you feel, well, I know the law is Old Testament. I know that. And then you might say, I know grace is New Testament. But actually God is a God of grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always been a God of grace. Whenever Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, it was the grace of God that covered them with coats of skin, mm -hmm. that forgave them. That's the grace of God. God could have wiped them out, couldn't he? But he didn't, because of his grace. The Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has always been there. God has always shown grace. Uh, and it was grace that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was the grace of God. They didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves God's grace. It's a free gift. 
was God's grace brought them out. And even though they complained and they moaned and they murmured and they groaned for 40 years, it was the grace of God that got them through and got their children into the promised land. It was the grace of God. You know, there's a couple of times God stood up and says, that's it, I'm done with them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out. He said to Moses, separate yourselves. I've had it with them. And Moses says, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Have mercy. And it was the grace of God that gave them that forgiveness and mercy. So grace has always been a thing of God. I mean, whenever Israel left Egypt, whenever Israel was in Egypt, could I say, they were a believing people. They were the only people on the face of the earth that believed in monotheism, a belief in one God. No other nation in the whole world believed that. Only the Hebrews. Because God gave them that. And even while they were in Egypt, they believed that. But yes, there was times they went into idolatry, even in the journey in the wilderness. They wanted to make a golden calf like they had in Egypt. There was times they bowed down to idols, which they shouldn't have done. God had to chastise them for that. But by and large, as a people, the only people on earth that believed in the one true God. And so... They had wonderful patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua. They had tremendous prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha and to name but a few. But while they were in Egypt, even as believing people, they were still captives and slaves to Pharaoh and in a system of ungodliness that they longed to be free from. So what does God do? He, quote-unquote, saves them, delivers them. How does he do that? A lamb had to be slain, blood had to be shed, and had to be applied, which is a type of Christ, as we know. Having done that, what does he now do with this believing people? He gives them the law to govern their whole lives, every part of their life, both civilly, ceremonially, and morally. And the law was good. And out of that moral law, the Ten Commandments, flowed the civil law. Because this is how you're to live, moral law, this is how you're to live as an individual. But then in the civil law, this is the outworking of that on a larger scale, to a national scale. Are you still with me? And of course, the ceremonial law was given so that how they could regulate their religious life, how they could worship a holy God. And it was very specific, and it was specified, and they just couldn't do it any way they liked. And there was restrictions to that because they had to learn. Because they'd been in Egypt for 400 years, they had been surrounded by paganism and superstition and false gods. So God was saying, if you're going to approach me, I'm different than those gods. <laughs> Got to be very careful. So the law in and of itself was good, and it did a lot of good, but the one thing it couldn't do was save their eternal souls couldn't do that wasn't meant to do that 
The law was meant to point them to one who was to come, the only one who could do that, the only one who could fulfill all of the law, complete it, and give his life for us on Calvary. <coughs> Remember that Abraham was, quote-unquote, saved over 400 years before the law was ever given. And how was he saved? By faith. His faith was accounted unto him for righteousness, not the law. The law hadn't even been given. And they couldn't see it. But it was his faith believing in God. That's what saved him. And it's our faith today, believing in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us righteous. That's what saves us. Abraham, before the law was given, he looked forward by faith to the one who was to come, the promised seed that would come from his loins. And you can follow his lineage all the way through, the Lord Jesus. So he looked forward to the one who was to come, the Savior was to come. But we, after the law, we look back by faith to the one who's been and who gave his life for us. So the Old Testament looked forward to the ones to come. New Testament, we look back to the one who's came. So it's not that difficult, really. Sure, it's not. And you start to think about it. And so thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, wholly, completely. And then, by his grace and mercy, give us his life his righteousness Amen. to live this life today without all of those ceremonial laws all of that priesthood all of those blood sacrifices all of those <coughs> couldn't go into the temple couldn't go into the holiest, most holiest holy except once a year and had to be the all of that's gone done forever now we are free in Christ to follow him thank God Amen. but but Legalists still think that the law saves them. And there's lots of people today who have the impression, and we'll talk more about this tonight, they have the impression, well, I know about the Ten Commandments, I couldn't quote them all, but I know some of them. And I've tried my best to, to, to live up to those Ten Commandments. I've done my best. And so I, I think God will accept me for that. No, he won't. No, he won't. That's legalism. That's what the Pharisees thought. That was their message. That's what they preached. And not only did they, they added to the law. The law wasn't enough for them. They added more laws to the law. To the people were bound and burdened and they couldn't take any more. It was killing them. And Christ, Christ came to set them free from that. And thank God we've been set free from that. In John 5, <clears throat> John 5, 36, If I bear witness on myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures. Listen to this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Ah. So by searching the scriptures, he said, you think that in itself is enough to give you eternal life? But he said, and these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. The very scriptures you're searching speaks of me, but you won't come to me. You're missing the whole point he's saying here. You're missing it completely. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another, or from one another, and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my works? Christ was in the Old Testament, hidden, revealed in the New Testament. And so a careful looking at the Old Testament will reveal Christ but they didn't see it. Paul even goes on later on to say there's a veil currently drawn over their eyes, but one day that veil will be lifted and they will see. We're almost finished. Let me just read just a little portion uh, from Galatians. And I'm going to read this from the, the New Living Translation. <coughs> Apostle Paul here writing. And he's concerned about the, the Galatian Christians going back under the law because of the Judaizers and the Pharisees were trying to get them to do that. And uh, some of them were. Some of them were backsliding and back under the old law and the old commands. And so in chapter 3, he writes, O foolish Galatians, what magician has cast an evil spell on you? For you used to see the meaning of Jesus Christ's death as clearly as though I'd shown you a signboard with a picture of Christ hanging on the cross. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the keeping of the law? Of course not. For the Holy Spirit came on you only after you believed the message you heard about Christ. Have you lost your senses? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? You've suffered so much for the good news, that's the gospel, surely it was not in vain, was it? Are you now going to throw it all away? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you uh, because you obey the law of Moses? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. 
In the same way, Abraham believed God, so God declared him righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would accept the Gentiles too on the basis of their faith. God promised this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. And so it is, all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessings Abraham received because of faith. So before the law, there was people saved by faith. After the law, there's people saved by faith. That's what he's saying. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the laws that are written in God's book of the law. Even though they thought they were, but they weren't. No man could keep it. The standard is just too perfect and too high. Consequently, it is clear that no one can ever be right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person is life. How different from this way of faith is the way of law, which says, if you wish to find life by obeying the law, you must obey all of its commands. James, in his little epistle, said, even if you break just one point of the law, God will hold you guilty as if you broke all of it. And then he said, well, what can I do? Well, you're not going to get saved by keeping the law. You're going to get saved by coming to Christ. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through the work of Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. And we Christians receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. And then he goes on to give examples and so forth. But let me just skip on to verse 24 of chapter 3. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian and teacher to lead us to Christ until Christ came. So now, through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. But now that faith in Christ has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all have been united with Christ in baptism, have been made like him. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you're all, you are Christians, you are one in Christ Jesus. And now you belong to Christ, you're the true children of Abraham, you are his heirs, and now all the promises God gave to him belong to you. Now, as we close, the law was designed to point men to Christ, the Savior. What about the ten? How do they fit into the New Testament? How do they fit in with Christ making the ten into two? How does that work? How does that work in practice? How does the law of Christ take over from the law of Moses. What about the Sabbath? Because I said that the ten has been subsumed into the New Testament. So what about the Sabbath? What's different about the Sabbath? Because that's a big issue even today. The Sabbath. Are we to keep Sunday as the Sabbath? Or Saturday as the Sabbath? Are we to keep any day as the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath for? What does it do? What are we supposed to do with it? Should we do anything with it? See, all these are issues. And tonight, God willing, tonight, that's what we're going to dive into. That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to see. And I promise you, I'm, I'm well, 
can't promise. But because I'm not in your head. So uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you see what it really is about. And it, and it encourages you, maybe even challenge you, and see it in a different light, perhaps, than you've ever seen it before, all right? So God willing, we're going to do that tonight. Now, I couldn't, you see why I couldn't do it on one go, all right? Now, ostensibly, this is a, 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 a series we're doing about Moses, the man of God. But we had a kind of little bit of a detour here, because this is such a big, big issue. You say, well, is that it finished now? Is that Moses thing over? No. Still a wee bit to go yet. <laughs> Uh, but we're, 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 almost, we're almost through it, but there's still a wee bit. I said I'm not going to read the whole 40 chapters. We're not going to do that. But there's incidents that you need to see that will encourage and challenge us as we go. Amen? Amen. All right. Glory to God. <coughs> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you freed us. And you gave us such liberty in the gospel. What a privilege that we have today of knowing that we are the sons and daughters of the living God that the price has been paid for our great salvation, that we belong to you, that our names are in the very book of life today. What a wonderful blessing that is, Lord. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, for all that you've done for us. We bless you for that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.